So good evening and a very warm welcome uh, to this special Gifford lecture in memory and in honour of Professor Susan Manning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Tim O'Shea, uh, convener of the Gifford Lectureship Committee. Um, and I feel very privileged to introduce Honora O'Neill, uh, Baroness O'Neill of Bengal this evening, and I'm very grateful she's graciously agreed to give her Gifford Lecture from toleration to freedom of expression in memory of Susan, who tragically died earlier this year. I, I'm also uh, very grateful to Honora for braving the weather and, that, uh, that, and its um, uncontrollable transport delays coming from the south, which is what, why we're starting uh, a little bit late. Um, let me start by saying something about Susan. As many of you will know, Susan Manning was Grierson Professor of English Literature and for seven years director of the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities. Um, we're currently uh, in the Playfair Library Hall, designed by William Playfair, uh, used as a working library, our most spectacular place. And it's particularly fitting that we're here because this is the place where Susan hosted a memorable, memorable series of events on the Enlightenment for her institute and for the university. Uh, Susan's contribution to the university was enormous and her influence was felt across the world through the excellence of her scholarship, her warm support of colleagues and her influential role in many learned societies and professional networks. She was internationally respected in the fields of the Scottish Enlightenment and in Scottish-American literary relations and beyond. Publishing in these and related fields, she wrote, with lucidity and elegance. At the end of the last year, she completed her book, Poetics of Character, Transatlantic Encounters, 1700 to 1900, which Cambridge University Press will publish next month. Uh, she's remembered with great affection and admiration by her colleagues and friends, not just for her fine books, her scholarship, her creative leadership of the Institute, but also how she was in everyday life, her generous and open character. She was an outstanding mentor who delighted in seeing other scholars, other scholars flourish. Uh, she was really a wonderfully uh, warm, engaging person. Uh, she was also extremely adept at getting hold of principles and charming them into providing resources for the Institute. Um, and I can, I can testify to her great, great communication skills and, um, and her charming persistence. Um, the university is honoring Susan's memory in a number of ways. <clears throat> We've established a Susan Manning postdoctoral fellowship to be held in the Institute, and the first fellowship has been awarded to Dr. Alison Crockford. And I'm very pleased that Alison is with us here today. We are extremely grateful to the many people around the world who've already given generously to allow us to go forward with this fund. Uh, we would like to make the fellowship last for many years to come. And to that end, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences is match funding any donations that are made. Um, if you want to support the initiative as it goes forward, then you can find details on the flyer on your seats or on the Institute's website. I'm particularly glad that Howard Manning, Susan's husband, and her sister Claire and niece Bella are with us here this evening. We're really very pleased to see you. Um, it's now a great pleasure for me to introduce our Gifford lecturer, Honora O'Neill. She's taught at various universities in the US and the UK. She's principal of Newnham College, Cambridge from 1992 to 2006. 
president of the British Academy from 2005 to 2009, chaired the Nuffield Foundation from 1998 to 2010. She currently chairs the Equality and Human Rights Commission and is on the board of the Medical Research Council. She's been a very distinguished member of the House of Lords since 1999 and is an independent non-party peer. Uh, she served on the House of Lords Select Committee on Stem Cell Research, on the BBC Charter Review, and uh, on uh, reviews on genomic uh, medicine and nanotechnology and food and behavioural change. She writes on ethics and political philosophy with particular interests in conceptions of justice, in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, and in bioethics, and has published mainly in philosophical journals and has also written a number of very important books. She currently works on practical judgment and normativity, conceptions of public reason and autonomy, sorry, conceptions of public reason and of autonomy, trust and accountability, and the ethics of communication. Before I hand over to Baroness O'Neill, I just need to let you know that the lecture this evening is being recorded, and the video will be available on the University of Edinburgh Gifford website. So that also means, A, you, you might be out there, and B, when you do, uh, if you're asking questions later, do wait for the microphone, because we need uh, that, otherwise we can't, we can't record you. I've now got great pleasure in handing over to Baroness Honora O'Neill. Please. Principal, ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues, uh, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. We had a storm down there, and it was very, very difficult to get from London to Edinburgh today. Uh, it is for me a great pleasure and an honour, but also a great sadness to give this Gifford Lecture in memory of Sue Manning, whom so many of us here today knew and admired. I think we probably can all remember when we first met her. And for me, that was in 1991-2, when I became principal of Newnham College. And it was immediately evident to me that she was someone special. She combined, as you all know, high intellectual gifts, clarity of mind, and the thing that struck me above all, outstandingly good judgment, with great warmth. And she always saw the funny as well as the serious side of life, which one sort of needs. She carried both the most difficult and the most irritating academic and other tasks with grace and focus, and all of this through stages of life when she and Howard had very young children. She was warm, funny, and centred, and she was a good friend. It was some, with some foreboding that I said a bit about her many gifts and achievements when asked when she applied for a chair here, and it was with sadness that I saw her leave Cambridge. Fortunately for me, we remained in close touch, and over the years, I saw how much she achieved for the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, and I always look forward to visits to Edinburgh and further conversations. Alas, no more. When asked to give this lecture, I thought of several topics that I would have loved to discuss with Sue. I was very tempted to talk about judgment, which she had in such abundance, and which has, I believe, been marginalised and misunderstood in a lot of contemporary writing. But I decided in the end to speak about toleration, 
which was a fundamental concern for many of the Enlightenment writers whom Sue read and wrote about with such discrimination. I'm not going to try to revisit the very complex history of toleration from its early modern origins, but simply to contrast some of those earlier views with widespread contemporary claims about what we may call speech rights and speech wrongs, wrong and right ways of using speech. I'm going to say a little first about speech duties. Toleration wasn't the first of the many duties and rights that bear on speech to be identified and discussed. Traditional codes and practices are full of claims about the duties of speakers. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. I promise to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as well as many and various prohibitions on blasphemy, defamation, perjury, obscenity, false promising, and many other speech wrongs. And with the growth of literacy, of course, the duties of speakers were at, were, became also duties of writers. But the claims of toleration differ from those traditional lists of the duties of speakers and writers. For toleration isn't a duty on us when we speak or write, but a duty that bears on others. It's held by everybody else, including all and any potential audiences. For this reason, it is nowadays regularly seen as an ancestor of contemporary speech rights, which in emphasizing the rights of those who express themselves or communicate, also focus on duties to respect and protect others' speech. It has become a commonplace of liberal thought in our day that societies that respect speech rights, and in particular the now canonical right to freedom of expression, uphold and continue, possibly even advance, earlier debates about toleration. I, I label it canonical because that is the formulation both in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the European Convention of Human Rights, as I'm sure you know, freedom of expression. But I think things may be more interesting than this somewhat progressivist story about where we've got to suggests. Contemporary discussions of freedom of expression undoubtedly in part continue those earlier debates to which demands for toleration were central. And they certainly express respect for those earlier views of toleration. But they make a more radical shift from the perspective of readers and listeners and bystanders and their duties and obligations to the perspective of speakers and writers and their entitlements and rights. In a sense, I think that is the fundamental shift here. To put the claim that I'm going to make in a nutshell and too crudely, many early accounts of toleration do not assert that speakers have a right to say or to do everything that others have a duty to tolerate them saying or do doing. They assert much more strikingly that there are duties to tolerate others' speech, even if it is false, and up to a point, their action, even if it is wrong. But they do not claim that individuals have rights to speak falsely, let alone to act wrongly. So it's, it's a, a distinctive position. Early views of toleration do not ascribe untrammeled, let alone enforceable rights to freedom of expression to speakers and writers. Rather, they claim that speech should be free from restraint by the civil authorities and should be tolerated. And this is what made toleration seem so difficult and so demanding a duty 
in the eyes of its earlier protagonists. Now, today we've extended the rights of, uh, of speakers and writers to cover all forms of expression. With limited exceptions, speech is to be protected. Individuals are to have rights to express themselves, to speak and to publish, and these rights are legally protected in robust ways in liberal societies. Speech acts, with clearly defined exceptions, are now not seen as wrongs to be tolerated, but as something that we have a right to perform. In the contemporary landscape in which respect for others' rights, and specifically for their rights to freedom of expression, is central, toleration, I'm going to argue, has become a lesser, even a redundant, some might say a less visible virtue. So I'm going to talk a bit about toleration, truth and censorship by way of lead-in. Many of the reasons that were given in the early modern period for tolerating others' speech, even if it was false, appeal to the importance of truth. These arguments meet the advocates of censorship on their own ground. Censorship has many purposes, but one that mattered in the early modern period was its use to buttress faith and prevent the spread of religious error. Many defenders of censorship assume that we can have a secure grasp of truth, and in particular of important truths about God, the world, and human destiny, and that it's wrong to tolerate dissent and the dissemination of false and dangerous ideas and heresies. Now, this is not, I think, obviously a foolish argument. It's very unfashionable, I know, but it's not obviously foolish. But one of its underlying assumptions is false. As Oliver Wendell Holmes remarked in a disarming aside in his famous dissenting opinion in Abrams versus the United States, it's a, a, a canonical uh, uh, opinion on free uh, speech rights in the US tradition, and uh, it's 1919. He wrote, he said, Persecution for the expression of opinion seems to me perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and you want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. So censorship is not always dumb. The obvious argument for censorship is that speaking falsely, perhaps some other traditional speech wrongs, shouldn't be protected. Now, this is not an argument that now finds much favour in liberal circles, but it's worth remembering that once upon a time, the aim of protecting and promoting truth provided a central, if questionable, argument for censorship, even for persecution, rather than for duties of toleration, let alone for more extensive speech rights that protect a greater range of speech. And, of course, as we know, today there are still places where these arguments are taken all too seriously. The false premise, perhaps it's obvious to us, but it wasn't always so obvious, is just that truth is not securely knowable. Even in these very important matters, perhaps especially in these very important matters, and that fallibility provides a good reason to tolerate and protect rather than to seek to control or regulate speech. Censorship might, after all, if its protagonists were mistaken, lead to the persecution of those who, in fact, are preaching or stating or advocating what is true. So if we take truth seriously, but we don't know where it lies, then aiming for truth requires us to tolerate or protect utterances and publications that may be false. Toleration of dissent 
can then be justified because it is some assurance that we don't end up persecuting those who may, in fact, be speaking the truth. But as it stands, this is only an argument against censorship, that is, against the control and regulation of speech content by the civil authorities, particularly in areas of high fallibility. A related but rather more ambitious argument linking truth and toleration has also enjoyed lasting popularity. It stresses not merely the fallibility of claims to know the truth, but the beneficial and truth-disclosing effects of submitting truth claims to challenge. John Milton offered a famous version of this argument in Areopagitica, claiming that tolerating dissent and allowing dispute not merely ensures that we don't inadvertently suppress the truth, but also fosters, inadvertently or deliberately suppress the truth, but it also fosters the discovery of truth. You will all recognize this passage from Milton. And though all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth, so truth is in the field, we do injuriously, by licensing and prohibiting, misdoubting her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Advocates of toleration for dissenting speech are no doubt right that mere appeals to intuition, revelation, or direct experience are fallible. However, I fear that claims that truth always, let alone invariably, wins in free and open encounters between truth and falsehood are less convincing. Toleration, free and open encounters not to mention contemporary configurations of speech rights, may help the discovery of truth, but they may also sometimes marginalise true and trustworthy claims or fail to unmask false or untrustworthy ones. Free and fair encounters, we all know, can end up with a babble of voices, of confusion, of errors, in which trustworthy claims and commitments mingle with and are hard to distinguish from false claims and false promises. Truth may not be victorious in free and open encounters or in what John Stuart Mill more bluntly called collisions with error. A more contemporary expression of this implausible hope invokes the image of a marketplace of ideas which it credits with power to distinguish the false or untrustworthy from the true or trustworthy. As has often been remarked, Markets are no more immune to the effects and distortions of asymmetric power and knowledge than are non-commercial free and open encounters or collisions with error. The so-called marketplace of ideas is, I think, unlikely to be a perfect market, and if it were, it would presumably maximise market value rather than the discovery of truth. Marketplaces of ideas, like markets of other goods, are, I think, likely to promote products that appeal or flatter that enhance reputation or wealth, that are well-known or comfortable, and so may favour claims that are neither true nor trustworthy. Now, these arguments from the importance of enabling the discovery of truth to the importance of toleration seek to show that it would be wrong for the state or other powers to censor, or as Milton put it, to licence or prohibit speech. What they seek to establish is not an unrestricted right of speakers and writers to, to quote Spinoza, think what they wish and say what they think. The point of toleration, as Spinoza in fact put it with greater precision, is 
that in a free state, everyone is permitted, i.e. permitted by the civil authorities, to think what they wish and say what they think. Spinoza argues for toleration as a duty on the state to allow people to speak and publish rather than to exercise what came to be known as prior restraint on speech and publication. And, of course, Spinoza's not alone. Again and again, we find writers, not only in the 17th century, but into the 18th and 19th century, insisting that while it is wrong to silence or censor, to exercise prior restraint, nevertheless, there are no rights to say or publish whatever one wants, and consequently, each person may be accountable for their speech. This view had its place in cultures that I think still took a wider range of speech duties seriously. It's a view shared by writers across the political spectrum. For example, you can find it in the conservative lawyer William Blackstone, who wrote in his famous 1765 commentaries on the laws of England that the liberty of the press is indeed essential to the nature of a free state, but this consists in laying no previous restraints on publication and not in freedom from censure for criminal matter when published. Every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public, and to forbid this is to destroy freedom of the press. But if he publishes what is improper, mischievous, or illegal, he must take the consequences of his own temerity. No right to do that. Thomas Jefferson took the same view in his second inaugural address, which is 1805. He wrote, no inferences here intended that the laws provided by the states against false and defamatory publications should not be enforced. And Thomas Paine took the same view, so you see the political spectrum's all there. 186, quote, a man does not ask for liberty beforehand to say something he has a mind to say, but he becomes answerable afterwards for the atrocities he may utter. In like manner, if a man makes the press utter atrocious things, he becomes as answerable for them as if he'd uttered them by word of mouth. And looking at the aftermath of the Lord McAlpine affair, we may say that he or she who takes the internet in vain also becomes liable for them. For each of these thinkers, a free press means what Paine called the fact of printing free from prior restraint, and not at all to the matter, that is what we would now call the content, printed, whether good or bad, the public at large, or in the case of prosecution, a jury of the county will be the judges of the matter. It is, I think, striking to remember how far these famous protagonists of duties of toleration and press freedom are from endorsing contemporary rights to freedom of expression. For them, toleration is a duty on those with the relevant power not to exercise prior restraint, not to license, not to prohibit. And their position is compatible with a great deal of legislation that regulates speech, and more specifically speech acts, in many ways. For example, with laws against sedition and blasphemy, against obscenity and indecency, as well as the more limited legislation thought acceptable today because it's needed in order to secure respect for other human rights. For example, restrictions on defamation and fraud. In this earlier world, toleration is required, but there is no general right to freedom of expression. Speakers and writers remain answerable, in some cases answerable to the courts, 
for wrongful but permitted speech. It's an interesting category. Indeed, some Enlightenment writers on toleration emphasize that it's the right response not only to wrongful speech, but to a certain amount of wrongful action. In his grandly vituperative, but I have to say strikingly under-argued, entry on toleration in his philosophical dictionary, Voltaire maintained that toleration is the proper response to others' misdeeds, folly, and error. This is what he says. I don't pretend to see the argument in this, but it is what he says. What is tolerance? It is the consequence of humanity. We are all formed of frailty and error. Let us pardon reciprocally each other's folly. That is the first law of nature. We should pardon each other's errors. Discord is the great ill of mankind, and tolerance is the only remedy for it. <clears throat> now, uh, moving forward to our day, what can we say about this uh, discrepancy so that we may claim the early writers on toleration as the ancestors of contemporary thought, but there's actually a big difference. I think we need to take a much more focused view of communication than we find either in classical discussions of toleration or in contemporary discussions of freedom of expression, if we're to make progress here. In particular, I think we need to distinguish quite systematically between the protection that should be afforded to speech content, in my view rather extensive, from that which should be afforded to speech acts, in my view less extensive. I'm not going to take the time this evening to pursue the underlying issues in speech act theory here. Some of you may want to buttonhole me, but I'll keep it uh, uh, tidy. But I will focus on the demands that arise once we take account of the fact that many, not all, many speech acts are designed to communicate, and in particular, of course, to communicate truth claims and commitments to act. No doubt there are other speech acts that can be thought of merely as forms of self-expression or uh, which do not make truth claims, but I'll leave them aside. When speech acts make truth claims or make commitments, potential readers, viewers, or listeners need to assess those claims and commitments. But they can't do so unless those who make the claims seek to make their speech intelligible to and accessible by the relevant audiences. Audiences need intelligible and accessible communication. And meeting these standards is, I suggest, fundamental to any ethics of communication. And of course, it isn't a simple matter. Yet many contemporary views of speech rights do not focus on communication and what it requires. They demand much more broadly that all speech be strongly protected. In this, I think one can catch the echo of John Stuart Mill's emphasis on uh, something that is, uh, I think, a false friend of uh, rights to freedom of expression, namely freedom of self-expression. Again, I won't go into that. The thought that we all have rights to express ourselves trumps both duties of truth-telling and requirements to communicate in ways that enable audiences to understand and assess others' claims and commitments. In effect, the duties that were formerly central to any approach to the ethics of communication have, in some ways, been marginalised. In consequence, restrictions on speech are now seen as requiring strong, specific justification and 
although we make an exception for institutional or official speech, we are very loath to think that there should be any restrictions on the speech of individuals. Of course, official and professional speech is regulated. We don't allow companies to invent their accounts, for example. That phrase, creative accounting, isn't a form of praise. And we don't allow officials to invent the achievements of their institutions, though I think they quite often do. And we don't allow politicians to claim to have been awarded doctorates, which they never submitted, although some do. We will all know what, what, of a German minister who had to resign. But the only respects in which it's now seen as generally acceptable to constrain the speech of individuals is where this is necessary to protect other human rights. For example, rights to privacy, to reputation, rights to life. Accordingly, while we still prohibit speech that's defamatory or that incites hatred or that seeks to defraud or intimidate, The justification for these restrictions is typically a claim that such action would threaten or violate other human rights. We now accept that there are rights to perform speech acts that are unintelligible and unaccessible, even for their supposed audiences. Now, this aspect of contemporary speech rights brackets and reduces the scope of some of the most important epistemic and ethical norms on which communication depends, including, of course, the most ancient duties that bear on speech. It affords protection both to sense and to nonsense, to truth and falsehood, to good judgment and to wild surmise. Yet the means for, just, uh, the means for adjusting trustworthiness are essential for all communication, above all for communication that makes truth claims or makes commitments. We hope and we often need to tell whether others' claims are true or false. We hope, and we often need, to tell whether others' commitments are trustworthy or untrustworthy. Communication of all sorts fails if it's unintelligible to its intended audiences. Communication of truth claims and commitments fails even for audiences that find them intelligible if they can't assess their trustworthiness. The communication of truth claims and commitments therefore works only if audience can both understand what is said, to some extent, that is the speech content, and judge what is done, that is the speech act, in saying it, to some extent. Indeed, the need to judge trustworthiness extends well beyond speech acts that make overt truth claims and commitments. For example... Poetry or jokes may not make literal truth claims or commitments. One sort of missed the point if one asks, is it true? But intended audience still need to be able to tell whether claims and assumptions on which the intelligibility of the jokes or the poetry depends are true or false, and indeed whether those who crack the jokes or declaim the verse are indeed joking or declaiming. Even communication that doesn't raise direct questions about the trustworthiness of the specific claims or commitments, often builds on background judgments about trustworthiness as well as intelligibility. I think, broadly speaking, the way I'm looking at this is that trust in what others say and do is a response. It can be well-placed if it can be aligned with trustworthiness. But this can only be done when audiences can judge both what others say and what they do in saying it. If I cannot understand the content of other speech acts, they will remain unintelligible to me. 
If I can't judge what they're doing in communicating that content, I won't be able to align trust with trustworthiness. Trust and mistrust are easily misplaced, of course, because untrustworthy communicators often provide misleading evidence in order to lead others to accept their claims and commitments as trustworthy. And even trustworthy communicators may mislead if they fail to provide evidence that allows others to work out whether their claims and commitments are indeed adequately trustworthy. Both misplaced trust and misplaced mistrust are costly. If we mistakenly trust the claims and commitments of the untrustworthy, they may, of course, betray us and cost us whatever we state, money, reputation, friendship. If we mistakenly refuse to trust the trustworthy, they may, may be a lot less inclined to remain trustworthy, and they may resent any checking or accountability by which we seek to discover or to remedy the failings that they do not have. At the very least, transaction costs will mount steeply where, un, where trustworthy communication is routinely mistrusted, is met with misplaced suspicion and excessive checking. These issues are fundamental to all communication, but they're bracketed once we focus on the protection of rights to freedom of expression and ignore the needs of those on the receiving end of communication. For audiences, judging truth and trustworthiness often matters. Now, these commonplace, ubiquitous requirements for successful communication suggest to me that there's more to be said about speech rights and wrongs than can be said by invoking either duties of toleration or rights to freedom of expression. Truth matters, trustworthiness matters, an account of speech rights that brackets these fundamental epistemic norms and with them many of the more traditional speech duties isn't likely to be enough for the purposes that we all have, not only in academic and professional but in daily life. So let me say a bit about what more we seek. I've called this section Inquiring Right because I've uh, been helped by John Donne for this bit. The reality of human fallibility means that the search for truth cannot favour censorship by those with power. I think that's what we retain from the 17th century. But if we don't know where truth lies... Putting an end to censorship and prior restraint is only a part of what's needed. If we're to reach an account either of toleration or of speech rights that takes the role of truth claims and commitments in communication more seriously, we have to say more. The pursuit of truth demands far more than free and open encounters, collisions with errors, with error, let alone that marketplace of ideas. John Donne, in his third satire, presents what is needed as a matter of inquiring right, a very pithy and economical and, I think, rather beautiful phrase. Here is a very brief extract from his... To stand inquiring right is not to stray, to sleep or run wrong is. On a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands, and he that will reach her about must and about must go, and what the hill's suddenness resists, win so. Dunn's prescient thought is that those who seek truth must labour and strive. Their task is like a struggle to climb a huge hill. 
That is why they will find that they about must and about must go, retracing and checking earlier thoughts, interrogating others' speech to discern its truth and its trustworthiness. I think Dunn is right. Discovering truth and trustworthiness is demanding. If we are to judge others' communication, either true or trustworthy, or alternatively, false or deceiving, we have to judge their speech acts. And if we cannot make such judgments, we will have to settle either for blanket credulity, what's nowadays called blind trust, or for blanket suspicion or scepticism, currently, of course, rather a lot more fashionable than credulity, or else for some arbitrary procedure, like tossing a coin. However, those on the receiving end of others' communications can often make at least reasonable judgments about their truth and trustworthiness. Doing so is most feasible where audiences can see or work out that the relevant norms and standards are being respected, so can assess the truth of what is claimed and the trustworthiness of what is promised, so can place or refuse their trusts intelligently. I say intelligently, not infallibly. Now, in considering the norms that matter for truth or trustworthiness, it's helpful to begin with the case, not very simple, but let's begin with it, a face-to-face communication between persons with a common natural language. Here there are no intermediaries, though there is, of course, both a cultural and a material medium, a shared natural language, some audible sounds, some visible symbols. In these situations... Placing and refusing trust intelligently depends centrally on being able to judge the honesty, reliability and competence of those making claims and commitments. These are the basic standards on which we have to get a handle if we're to judge whether what's said is true or trustworthy and avoid placing our trust in claims and commitments that are mistaken, based on hearsay, gossip or lies, fraudulent or dishonest. Now, obtaining adequate evidence of competence, honesty, or reliability for a given context can be pretty difficult, even in face-to-face communication. But we need feasible ways of obtaining the relevant evidence. Typically, we consider and sometimes we check or challenge the evidence that's immediately to hand. Then we seek further evidence that might corroborate or undermine our initial impressions of others' honesty, competence, and reliability. We might, for example, seek independent evidence for the truth of what is claimed, or the evidence of an independent witness. We might look for evidence that the other party is generally trustworthy, i.e. has a reliable habit of speaking truth and honouring commitments, or for evidence that, that they're in a position to know what they claim is the case, or to carry out what they promise to do or for evidence that failing to tell the truth or to honour the commitment made would cost them a lot, for example, would destroy a hard-earned reputation or credit rating. Judging whether to trust others' claims and commitments is generally done by linking a range of evidence and checking whether the wider picture corroborates or undermines the trustworthiness of specific claims and commitments that have been made. But even these elementary thoughts about face-to-face communication show, I think, that if we are to enable what Dunn called inquiring right, we need far more than an acknowledgement of the possibility of error or mistake. 
We need some acknowledgement of the speech duties that have been marginalised with the contemporary emphasis on rights to freedom of expression. We need speakers and writers to embed certain norms in their inquiry and communication, to take pains to show that they do this, to enable others to understand and assess their communication. So that seems to me to tell us that merely ensuring and protecting those famous free and open encounters, those collisions, those markets, is not enough. Nor is the contemporary version, which is called transparency, enough. Merely juxtaposing rival claims and arguments can indeed expose disagreement, but the results might be deeply structured by factors that have nothing to do with truth or trustworthiness, by power and money, superstition and gossip, celebrity and fame. And all of these can distort the epistemic and ethical requirements that have to be built into adequate, accessible communication. And where truth and trustworthiness mattered to us, we're entirely clear that these and further norms have to be embedded in our communication. We don't view giving testimony or reporting what's taken place or investigating crimes or scientific inquiry or adjudicating disputes as adequately done if it's done without consideration of others' need to judge truth and trustworthiness. Bernard Williams put this rather nicely in his, uh, I think, his last book, Truth and Truthfulness. He says this, In institutions that are expressly dedicated to finding out the truth, such as universities, research institutes, and courts of law, speech is not at all unregulated. People cannot come in from outside, I'm not sure what outside is, speak when they feel like it, make endless irrelevant or insulting interventions, and so on. They cannot invoke a right to do so, and no one thinks that things would go better in the direction of truth if they could. Now, Williams is surely right that truth-seeking is in considerable tension with a policy of tolerating all and any speech acts or regarding them as permissible forms of expression. If we want to distinguish true from false claims or trustworthy from untrustworthy commitments... We must indeed not shield claims from, um, from debate and question, but we must also constrain debate by normative standards, by the relevant standards of inquiry and truth-seeking, the standards of inquiring right for the particular matter at hand. All of us in professional and business life and public life know this, and what is more, we know it in everyday life. A need to judge truth and trustworthiness is not confined to specialist situations and institutions. And yet these demands are now often marginalised in discussions of speech rights and speech duties. In treating rights to freedom of expression as fundamental, we frame our debates in the, from the perspective of the right holder and say very little about the demands on those who hold the counterpart duties who are thought of quite abstractly and minimally, as the bearers of duties to respect others' relevant rights. Merely given priority to the perspective of rights, all too often leaves it unclear who ought to do what for whom, in which situation, at what cost, to self or others. Our public life is consequently awash with claims about the rights of speakers, but I would contend 
negligent of their duties or of the claims of audiences. Speakers are seen as bearers of rights, but lacking duties beyond duties to respect others' rights. So let me say a little bit about why I think we have marginalised toleration by way of conclusion. In this lecture, I've tried to contrast some classical claims about the virtue of toleration, which marked a widening of concern with the duties of speakers to take account of others' duties not to censor speakers, with a more complete shift that we see in contemporary claims about rights up to freedom of expression, in which the duties of speakers have given away, have given way to an expansive view of freedom of expression other than in official and institutional contexts. This, I think, is why toleration has come to seem less central in contemporary discussions of speech rights and duties. It seemed to some of our Enlightenment predecessors that toleration was an important and a difficult virtue which was directed to others' communication and specifically to their communicative action. But as we know, virtues have their fortunes and misfortunes. David Hume pointed, and I think with, with approval, to the decline of what he called the martial and the monkish virtues, such as chivalry, humility and meekness. Charity, once the greatest of the Christian virtues, is now all too often equated with quite sporadic philanthropy. And toleration, once the great rallying cry of the Enlightenment, is now often construed as no more than respect for others' rights to freedom of expression and is calling not for demanding duties of self-restraint, but simply for respect for others' enforceable rights. Toleration in its heyday was a difficult demand, a demand that we not silence others' speech or limit their speech acts, in particular those that bear on religious practice. Or their cl Anything less couldn't have protected heretical or heterodox claims and practices. Toleration wasn't just hard, it was controversial, in large part because it seemed to take questions of truth and speaking truth far too lightly. By contrast, some current views of toleration see it as a rather easy virtue, with narrower aims, that responds mainly or exclusively to others' speech and is compatible with far-from-tolerant views of wrongful action and practice. Where right conduct is highly codified by criminal and civil law, by regulatory and institutional process, as in many contemporary liberal societies, speech is indeed protected unless it is wrongful speech. But protection of wrongful speech is now not seen as a virtue, but as a further wrong. Witness the uh, endless media discussion of what is taken to be hate speech. So we end up with a view that tends to see all action that violates no rights as permissible, hence not calling for toleration, there being no wrong to tolerate. We have, it seems, shrunk it seems shrunk the arena in which toleration of others' misdeeds or false claims once had its place. If others violate no rights, they do only what they have a right to do. Toleration has little place, unless, like earlier writers, we hold that there are some beliefs, actions and practices that are wrong, yet should not be constrained or prohibited. Societies that extend the domain of rights and regulation in the way that many contemporary rights-oriented cultures have tended to demand, inevitably shrink the space for toleration. 
which comes to be seen as hardly a virtue, since it is not needed if others act within their rights and misplaced if they do what they have no right to do. Thank you very much. Very good. Uh, we'll move now to the question and answer session then, please. Um, uh, so do, do indicate if you would like to ask Baroness O'Neill a, a question uh, or make a comment on her absolutely excellent lecture. Uh, and don't forget to say who you are. Who's the first question? Could I just pick up on that theme you, you mentioned at the end of, of tolerance falling power as a virtue and suggest that there there may also be a dark side to tolerance in some political context that bears on this issue. Um, for example, Antipodean governments find their indigenous populations making claims of right against them, grounded in genealogical animist views that um, have no place within a, within a Western outlook. And there's a certain liberal response that sees these views as mythical nonsense, but that liberals have lost the right to say so. That, to me, seems like rather a high-handed tolerance, and it's not politically helpful with reconciliation. And at least one aspect of the grounds of a right of freedom of expression, that you have the right to say it how it matters most to you, is perhaps more helpful in these contexts. I just wondered what you might say to that. Simon, thank you very much. Um, Simon and I have discussed these things over many years. <coughs> so that was a question that shouldn't have taken me by surprise, but it slightly has. Um, um, let me think. Uh, yes, uh, I think the way we have begun to draw the boundaries of hate speech does raise a lot of very difficult questions, and uh, not only... Uh, with respect to indigenous uh, groups. Uh, I know you're thinking of New Zealand, but, but uh, I think it does. And um, the, the idea isn't um, of the wrong shape, because it's roughly, the content is okay. You can use this naughty word, but please would you use it in inverted commas or in a scholarly magazine or the like, because what you shouldn't do is to use it uh, as it were, in uh, direct speech. And people feel very inhibited because not everybody knows when they are or are not permitted to use a word. So we have, of course, this glorious situation now where journalists will talk about the N-word and the F-word, and they're going through the alphabet and the whole lot of other words that supposedly um, one shouldn't use. Although, of course, there are other people who may use them. And that gets quite a difficult situation. And I think we have to ask ourselves whether we are drawing the boundary at a plausible place or whether we are disenfranchising people for being less sophisticated. Thanks for the talk. I'm Ben Sachs. Um, I was wondering whether you think that there's an arena of human life where <clears throat> the duties of speech that you were laying out, uh, which is sort of to, uh, to uh, make evident why you're saying what you're saying and that, you know, your credentials of trustworthiness and your evidence and everything like that. I was wondering if you think if there's some arena of human life, human discussion where those standards don't apply 
um, some arena of human life we might call bullshitting, where you can just sort of talk freely and propose things yeah. without really being responsible for having anything to back it up. That's a good it seems to me like there, there's got to yeah. be some yeah. space for that. that that's a, a good point, because uh, I've talked about the speech in which we make truth claims and make commitments, two of, of what I think of as the uh, most fundamental speech acts that we do perform, uh, so that, for example, what is the difference between me when I uh, write uh, the horoscope for the newspaper and when I report on the magistrate's court? Well, the, we hope that the difference is that nobody's going to turn around and uh, write to the editor and say of the horoscope, uh, which, as you say, is bullshit, um, uh, well, uh, I'm really very cross because I didn't meet a tall, dark stranger today or whatever it might be. We know that's fun. And, of course, lots of speech is not aimed at truth and not aimed at making commitments. And uh, I, I haven't here said much about that. I am rather engaged on that front in the Leveson-Post-Leveson debates because, of course, the um, prostitution of the notion of investigative journalism by people who don't seem to know a truth claim from a wild surmise is, uh, has been a very big problem. But if you're doing investigative journalism, these standards are relevant, and the quid pro quo, if it's genuine investigative journalism, is that sometimes although the default would surely be, if it's genuine, that you give evidence, but the default, there would also be permission to hide some sources. What has gone wrong, in my view, is that people have used that little bit of cover to claim uh, that they have a right to hide their sources <coughs> for many things where they don't have anything that amounts to a source. Penny Fielding from English. Uh, I noticed that during your talk you used the term toleration rather than tolerance. And I wondered if you felt that tolerance is a, a kind of state of absence or negativity and a failure to engage socially, whereas toleration is uh, an active, it's a verbal construct, and um, an ethical action, such as uh, Hume rather regrets the, the loss of, and it's a very enlightenment concept. Yes, I, <coughs> I noticed that the one place where I used the word tolerance was in uh, the passage from Voltaire, which uh, may simply be the consequence of the translation I, I used there. Um, I mean, the, there is a group of people, um, among them Mary Warnock, for example, who scratch their heads and say, well, tolerance is merely indifference. It's, it's passive. It, there's no merit in it. Um, and so whether we could tie the two words to the more active and difficult and the more passive and... Uh, easy. I don't know because I just haven't a sense of how people are now using the two words. But I do recognize the two things and that uh, there is quite a big literature saying the reason that toleration is an easy virtue is it isn't really much of a virtue because it's no more than indifference and uh, who could say that uh, expressing your indifference where you're indifferent is anything much. Thank you. Uh, Alison Elliott. Uh, I, you mentioned communication as being a, a key element in all of this, and yet uh, part of the essence of communication is surely that it is dynamic and that in speaking you're considering the response of the, of the, the person that, that maybe that's conversation. But surely, surely the, the dynamic dimension of a speech act 
uh, is something which is also relevant to how one uh, it, uh, appreciates toleration and the way in which one assesses the, the, the right of someone to express an opinion. I think I agree with that, but could you tell me a little bit more about how you're understanding dynamic in that? I think I'm thinking of it in terms of being uh, a process whereby people perhaps are jointly coming to an understanding. Okay, of yes. I, uh, no, I agree with that, and, and that, to my mind, is the context in which uh, these epistemic and ethical standards are important. And in my view... Um, the standard that is most fundamental is that of securing intelligibility to the supposed audience, to the other. And if what you, I produce is just a word salad, it um, is not likely to be very good communication. And then in much more specialised contexts, such as those of truth claims and making commitments or promises, uh, Intelligibility isn't quite enough. I've also got to convey within the speech act uh, something that the other party can judge in assessing what I'm saying in order to respond. So uh, I, I would uh, myself regard intelligibility and accessibility as the two fundamental standards that uh, speech that is directed to others, as opposed to, I suppose, a solipsistic word salad, should try to meet. I like the idea of a solipsistic word salad. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't matter because nobody was meant to understand it, you see. <laughs> Hi, uh, Rowan from Linguistics. Um, how would... Can you hold the mic closer to your mouth so people can hear? Yeah. Uh, how would we go about um, checking the toleration value or quality. Um, it, you were saying institutionally this is done anyway, but you're maybe extending it to something which we should do in general. So how would that be? The toleration boundary. The, tol the toleration quality. Quality. Sorry. Quality. Mm -hmm. um, I think that probably in everyday life we're quite good at that. Uh, we are very, very quick to sense when another person stiffens or doesn't listen or uh, takes an unsympathetic reading of what we've said, aren't we? So uh, I, I think that one of the things that many people have to learn when they grow up is not to be too quick uh, to um, read something negative or hostile into what others say, because it may just be different manners, different conventions, and the rest of it. I think of a little altercation I witnessed on the underground this morning, um, and um, it was no more than cultural difference about uh, whether I have a right to block the aisle because it's my suitcase. <laughs> so we're quite good at it. Thank you for an interesting talk. Um, you've mentioned Leveson, and I wonder whether you have any further observations to offer perhaps both on the language of um, witnesses to the inquiry and indeed what one might call the subsequent fallout. 
I have to declare an interest as a witness to the inquiry. And I, I even got a posse of about eight philosophers as witnesses. They weren't probably the most publicized witnesses, but I'm fairly satisfied that he did uh, think carefully about what we said. Um, a two-minute summary of where I think we are. Uh, Levison, remember, had a prospective and retrospective task. He couldn't really do the retrospective task because too much was sub judice. So he had to report on the culture, ethics, and so on of the, uh, of the media, but leave aside the, what, what had happened. Something may come out shortly. Uh, the... Um, Media debate about it has been totally lamentable. Uh, the standard argument has been that we ought to have a free press within the law. As we are, de- who disagrees? As we are debating what the law should be, <laughs> it hardly answers the question to say within the law. Within that debate, the, uh, I think politicians have been pretty frightened of the media and they found it very difficult to reach any agreement. The reason for the Royal Charter structure is that they didn't have to stand up and be counted and vote in Parliament. They just had a cross-party agreement. Um, At first, I thought that was not the structure to use. I now realise it has certain merits. Had the press wished to suggest uh, adequate forms of self-regulation that weren't just self-interested regulation, they've had seven decades to manage it, They will still be allowed to self-regulate, but there will be, I take it, a recognition body that will tell them whether their self-regulation reaches standards that they are officially in agreement with, and uh, they will get certain advantages by getting the endorsement of the recognition body. Thanks very much. Peter Fossil with the IASH. I, I agree with the, the, the gesture you're making to connect um, uh, standards of morality and um, epistemic value uh, to the term in, in a strong way, and your concern about that being lost with um, uh, an idea of um, self-expression rather than toleration. But I wonder if tolerance or toler- toleration may still be a bit too strong in a way that w- won't work in the direction you want to move, and that is it. Um, seems to already imply, if not prior restraint, a kind of judgment that makes it um, um, unsatisfactory. What I mean by that is we speak of tolerating um, a toxin or a poison or um, a kind of abuse. Um, in in um, engineering, I think we speak about the tolerance of structural members in buildings to pressure or weight that, you know, that they may bear. So it seems that there's already a sense when we use the term toleration of something being negative, being toxic or um, um, threatening, uh, which doesn't quite fit with a model of being open to further investigation, to uh, uh, debating about the application of epistemic or moral standards. So I wonder if that's why people resist tolerance, because of the very things that concern you? Well, of course, there are many, many contexts in which we use tolerance and other derivatives of the the Latin, uh, which don't have very much to do with toleration in in the sense of toleration of speech acts and speech content. 
Uh, and uh, it's good to remind ourselves of that. that. And all, I thought I was being broad enough, but I don't think I'm talking about uh, that, literally, that which can be born, although that is, of course, the etymology uh, of the word tolerate. Uh, and the engineering use probably lies out with this talk. It's, it's only the, the, the speech context. And I'm not sure that people give up the, uh, the notion of toleration. Uh, I think the situation we're in is more one where people are all too ready to claim that what we have um, substituted in our day, which is not actually rights of self-expression, but freedom of expression, um, is uh, the obvious descendant and continuation of that tradition. And I don't think it is. And this has puzzled me a lot, because the surface puzzle I began with is just this. Why do they think this was such a difficult thing? And why do our contemporaries think that toleration is, in, in this sense, is such an obvious, easy thing? And that, that if you like, is my puzzle. Hi. Um, I also liked your phrase, solipsistic word salad, although I don't like the phenomenon itself at all. Um, I've noticed that a lot of identity politics at the moment seems to be based around this solipsistic word salad. Um, I'm thinking of a lot of postmodernist identity politics particularly. I was wondering if you had any suggestions to us as people with inquiring minds as how we challenge the political arguments that are put forward based on solipsistic word salad. Um, I found this quite a difficult thing in the 1980s when both postmodernism and identity politics burst on the scene. Um, and I thought very hard about it uh, because uh, I think the, the simple answer is by direct methods you cannot win because you cannot win because they will always move the pieces if you try. Uh, so... Uh, uh, the, but there are ways in which one can approach the matter. But I would say, uh, on the whole, uh, unless you're prepared to go a very long, circuitous route, don't argue with postmodernists. Appreciate the beauty of what they try to do or not. The children growing up and forming society these days, um, when we look at the children who... Um, are not well cared for and are neglected or abused, um, they can either become what Winnicott would have called delinquents and intolerant of others and intolerable to others, or we can um, develop the things that every child should have within them, which is to be accepted for the adults around to be curious and able to empathise with them. And um, as parents, it's easy to tolerate behaviour and any expression from a child if you can understand why they act as they do, why they say what they do. Um, and in societies where um, people don't tolerate much, they're often very violent societies, very dictatorial, very aggressive. Um, people these days are used to sort of instant gratification, quick, quick fixes. You know, we're developing into a society where we perhaps don't think to stop and pause, engage our reflective areas of our minds, and, um, and therefore think about the other person and... That's the noble toleration, as I understand it, that's what makes me able to tolerate my children when sometimes I need to bite my lip and until we come to an understanding. 
Um, so I'm seeing less and less of that in the world these days. And in certainly in young children, if we nurture their ability to tolerate themselves, then they become um, adults who can tolerate others. And, you know, we have a society where we're all thoughtful, empathic, and we express ourselves sincerely, but also we're sensitive to cultural variations. And um, I do worry sometimes with the way we're becoming this quick fix, sort of sensationalised society, that yeah. we're going to be less able to tolerate difference. I probably wouldn't follow you in all those steps. I probably would be... Uh, uh, a stricter mother and grandmother than you. That is to say, I'm not sure that people who tolerate children behaving badly or unkindly are doing them any favor at all. And uh, I think that uh, uh, to, by all means, one has to be gentle and give reasons. But toleration... Uh, really does look like indifference if it's something that you earn whatever you do. That may be too harsh, but I may have misunderstood where you stand, but that would be my thought. So I'll take the chair's privilege and ask the last question. I mean, does the, does the mode of expression matter when you're thinking about toleration? I mean, it seems to me that sort of speaking, particularly interactive mm. speaking, is quite different from writing, which yeah. is different from publishing, yeah. Yeah. which is different from tweeting, which yeah. is different from yeah. retweeting. Yeah. Um, and so do we need to put different, you know, I mean, I, I would be much stroppier with, say, a retweeter than I would with somebody who, spoke, who you know, spoke directly back yes. to me, me just having said something. Um, and no, it's simply that you didn't get one of the other lectures in this series which <laughs> distinguishes uh, different um, uh, modalities and technologies of communication. And it is different, and I agree with you that I, I would... Uh, my uh, aside about the Lord McAlpine case is because I think we're on the edge of the realisation uh, that far from being... Uh, a playground, uh, a, a, a sort of romantic view of the internet as a playground where you can say anything and uh, people are beginning to think, no, this hurts people. There is cyberbullying, there are all sorts of things. And I would tend to agree with you that actually uh, retweeting, uh, people need to understand you're saying that in your, your own voice, and you are liable. And the brilliance, by the way, of Lord McAlpine's solicitor mm. is that the damages that they are mm. seeking are proportionate to the number of followers a person has. <laughs> I thought that was sort of wonderfully poetic justice. And some rather well-known people had rather a lot of followers. <laughs> Very good. So now, now I'd like to propose a vote of thanks. Uh, Su Susan Manning was a, a wonderful person of great intellect, uh, great warmth, great lucidity, and you have given us, Honora, a Gifford lecture which had all those qualities that we so admired in Susan, and I really inv invite the audience to join with me in thanking you most warmly. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.